This message first aired on the radio on September 15, 2003. Now, we've been studying the, for quite some time, we're in at least, I think, 15 weeks, we've been taking an overview of the Scriptures from a dispensational point of view. And for those of you who maybe are listening recently, or who are on the nearby side of this broadcast, let me just say that dispensation's a good Bible word. It's the translation of the Greek word okonomia, from which we get our word economy. And it means God's house order, or the rules of God's house. Today, the house of God is the church of the living God. It is the church which is his body, locally expressed. And therefore, God's house rules have to do with the church, which is his body. That has not always been the case. In fact, God didn't have a church which was his body. In times past, he did have a church. He had a church which called in Acts chapter 7, the church in the wilderness. He had the gathering of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And therein it's called a church because they were called out of Egypt. So he had that. And we're studying that dispensation, the dispensation, not necessarily of the church of the wilderness, but we call it the dispensation of the law. Now, much has been made about recently about the Ten Commandments, and somehow they've become controversial. But the dispensation of the law is called that because God took a people out of Egypt for his own name. He named that people Israel, named it after himself, Elohim, God, the prince with God, Israel. And he brought his firstborn nation out of the womb of Egypt, brought them across the Red Sea. They were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, led them across the wilderness by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. He fed them. He gave them all their needs. They had no sickness. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. And he brought them into the promised land. And so he led them by the hand of Moses and Joshua. And so the nation was formed. He brought them into a land of promise, which he had in a different dispensation, promised to their patriarch, Abraham, who was the father not only of Israel, but the father of many nations. And then Israel, in its adolescence, rejected the counsels of God systematically. They rejected the word of God that came to them, and God began to raise up other leaders called saviors. He began to raise up, in their adolescence, judges, to rescue them from their enemies as they turn from their sins and their whoredoms. Now, we've covered that portion of the dispensation of law, and we're now transitioning out of the times of the judges. In fact, we've been looking here at the last judge, who is Samuel, by some reckoning. Samuel, a judge, by certain reckoning. And the transition into the time of the kings. And for Israel to have a king, that's an important aspect in their growth. But Israel desires a king in unbelief. And I'm reminded of the great sovereignty of God who's over all things. God who has foreknowledge. And, of course, even the foreknowledge of God, which means that God knows things before they happen, even the foreknowledge of God is an anthropomorphism about God. Because with God, the present and the future and the past are all set before him at once. And so there's no time with God. He changes not. 
And so we say in human terms about God, that's anthropomorphism, we say that God has foreknowledge, that is to say he knows everything in advance of when it happens. And indeed he does. From our perspective, things happen sequentially in time. God, who authored time, knows all what's going to happen. And in so doing, he realizes, for example, that when the children of Israel wanted a king like all the nations, as it says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, make us a king to judge us like all the nations, they said to the prophet Samuel. God knew they were going to say that, and God's going to give them their desire. But God also has in mind for Israel a king. In fact, God himself is the king of Israel. And then he, at the fullness of time, at the proper time, brings into the world our Lord Jesus Christ, born of a woman. And he is born king of the Jews because God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ being God himself, is the king of Israel. So the children of Israel, where we left ourselves in the study of this dispensation of law, we left Israel really trying to provoke God or an enmity against God once again, where they say, make us a king like all the nations. And the thing was very displeasing to Samuel because he knew the wickedness of the children of Israel and why it was that they wanted a king so they could be like the Gentile nations around him. But God said, don't you be so upset. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me and give them the king that they want but warn them or protest solemnly unto them what manner of king they will have. And the children of Israel were told then by Samuel, the word of the Lord coming through the prophet, he said, the manner of king that will reign over you will take your sons, he'll appoint them for himself, and he'll take the sons and appoint them for his chariots to be horsemen, and some of your sons will run in front of his chariots, and he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties and will set them to ear his ground or to work his fields and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And in 1 Samuel 8:13 we read, He will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers, and he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants, and he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants, and he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take of the tenth of your sheep, and you shall be his servants. Now, one thing we see is that the kings that men appoint for themselves, they take from them. They take from them. We have here repetitiously, he will take this, he will take that, he will take this, he will take that. And this is what we find. The leaders that men appoint for themselves, whether they vote for them or however they choose their own leaders, when men choose leaders for themselves, they choose men who will take from them. And I'm reminded of the scripture in Second Corinthians where the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians and tells them, if a man takes from you, if he smites you, if he spits in your face, this man you will receive. There's something perverse about sinful man. Well, actually, there's everything perverse about sinful man. And one of the perversities of sinful men is that they choose leaders who mistreat them, and they reject leaders who treat them well. Here the children of Israel rejects God as their king. God would be their king directly. 
God would be their king if they would have him, and God gives to them. He gives to them their health. He gives to them their well-being. He gives to them their land. He gives to them the increase of the land. God is a giving person, and God gives, but men take. And what do the children of Israel want? Well, they want what you want. They want some guy to mistreat them and lead them and call them their leaders. And so the Lord said to Samuel these words that ended up being a bit pathetic when you really consider them. The Lord said to Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, verse 22, Hearken unto their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every man unto his city. And so now we're going to see the introduction of kingship, human kingship, in Israel, and we're going to see the kind of guy that the children of Israel want. And he's the kind of guy that people do want. And this is Saul from Benjamin. And we have a lot of things to say about Saul. We have a lot of contrasts and comparisons that we could make, but it's better read than summarized in this case. So we'll just read a little bit out of 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward he was higher than any of the people. And the asses of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to Saul his son, Take now one of the servants with thee, and arise, go seek the asses. Now, I'm just going to stop right there and talk a little bit about this man that is going to be the king over Israel. This is Saul, the son of Kish. And the first thing you want to see about this guy is he's really tall. He's a tall fellow. It says, from his head and shoulders, from his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. And this is where we get our figure of speech in English, that he's head and shoulders above the rest. We get this because from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So here's the first qualification of the kind of leader that men choose for themselves. They want some tall guy. They want some tall guy. And I suppose if you were to talk to election consultants and pollsters, these are the kind of people we have that find our leaders for us in America, but if you were to talk to an election consultant, they'd tell you this, well, now you want somebody to vote for, he needs to be a tall guy, and he needs to have a hairdo that people like. It's good if he has a good hairdo and looks good in a suit. In fact, it'd be best if the guy could wear one of the suits right off the rack. You know, he's just one of these, ought to be about six foot tall or a little taller, or if you really want a great big leader, get a guy like Saul, who must have been about six six to seven feet tall to be shoulders and head higher than everybody else. I mean, that's quite a bit of height. So let's get a tall guy. Well, what a criteria. What a criteria. That's as men see. Men see that look. he looks like a leader. He's tall. And I want to say this. Men look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Now, there is nothing the matter with tall fellows. It's okay to be tall. It's okay to be short. Short men have their own problems. They have the Napoleonic complex. They have the little guy complex. But tall guys, they have their own. And people want here, you see, they look on the outward appearance. 
Well, what qualification do we have in a leader that he's tall? Now, today, this is the way people also choose leaders. This is the way people decide who they'll follow. Now, God is not like this. He's not so foolish as this. God looks on the inward man. And let me just speak out of the dispensation a little bit and talk about our own, which is the church, which is his body. In the churches today, God does not call upon us to look on the outward appearance to find our leaders. So we don't need to have a tall guy with a good hairdo that looks good in a suit. That is not a good qualification for a leader. God gives us the leaders, and he talks about the character of the men, and he tells us the leaders in the church should fit the characteristics of elders as defined in the Scripture. So I just give you the application in case you missed that, although I don't know how you really could miss that. So the first thing is, this guy is a real tall guy. Now the second thing we find out about this guy is he's the son of a very wealthy guy. He's the son of a mighty man of power, Kish. And that's something else we like in our leaders. We like them to be rich. We like our leaders to have a lot of money and to be the children of wealthy people. And so that's what we get. We get children of wealthy people. We're told that first-generation wealthy people give us their money. Second-generation wealthy people give us themselves. I think I'd prefer the money. But that apart, one way or the other, notice here that he's the son of a wealthy man. Now, we can make some good comparisons and contrastings, but we want to look at the other qualification of this guy here, and we'll make our comparisons, our contrasts, a little later. But the other thing about this guy is he lost his father's donkeys. It says, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. Well, he sends his son Saul to go find the lost donkeys. The first thing we find out about Saul is he's a watcher of donkeys. And the second thing we find out about him is that he doesn't watch the donkeys very well and loses them. So he's tall, but he's not watching the... First, he's left to keep the donkeys, and secondly, he's not very good at keeping the donkeys. And that tells us uh, quite a bit about Saul, and we'll look at a comparison and a contrast when we come back. Well, we're back. We're talking about the kind of king that uh, the children of Israel wanted. And we're talking about Saul, the son of Kish, son of a wealthy man. He's a big seven-footer. He's a tall man. But we're going to find out a little later in his life what happens when he runs across somebody who's even taller. And, of course, that's one of the problems. But he's a keeper of donkeys. And there's nothing matter with keeping donkeys. If that's what you're assigned by your father to do, then I say keep the donkeys heartily as unto the Lord. But Saul apparently lost the donkeys. And so his father tells him, take now one of your servants with you. I suppose that's so that Saul can find his way home. And arise and go seek the donkeys. Now, he's going to go, and while he's looking for the donkeys, he's going to be given his career. But I want to make a couple of comparisons and contrasts right off the beginning here, and we might come back to that later as we continue to look at this fellow, Saul. The first thing is he's a Benjamite, and his name's Saul. So right away, we should think about, can I think of any other Benjamites named Saul? 
and perhaps you can't, and then that would be a problem if you can't, because the Apostle Paul is a Benjamite named Saul, and whereas we wouldn't necessarily say he was head and shoulders taller than everybody else, he was certainly head and shoulders smarter than the rest of Israel. I think we safely say that about the Apostle Paul. Very intelligent man. In fact, he's not just called Saul, but he's called Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus, one of the great learning centers in the world at the time of Saul of Tarsus. Arguably, it was number three. Well, I suppose in Tarsus, they put their hand up in the air and said they were number one, like they were some kind of Nebraska Cornhusker defense or something. Not that I've totally broken my Husker fast. But I suppose in Tarsus, they wave their finger, we're number one, like so many teams with three losses would do. But certainly they could say we're number three, because number one, in arrogance at least, intellectual arrogance, and this is the intellectual arrogance rating. We also add it's the coach's poll, so we can rely on it. Rome was the number one intellectual, arrogant intellectual place. So... In Rome, the college professors got paid better and did less work because they were so smart. And then number two in the world would be Athens. And maybe you remember when Saul came to Mars Hill, the Areopagus, in Athens to meet with those college professors who, and you say, well, how do you know they're college professors? Because the Scripture says they didn't have anything to do but sit around and think about some new thing. And that's how I know they're college professors. And I've been to the university, so you can't fool me. In fact, according to the Nebraska Constitution for one year, I sat on the Board of Regents of the University of Nebraska. And so I've been there. I've seen it. And when I talk about Mars Hill being a place of university professors hanging out, I know what I'm talking about. And I suppose they could also drink there. And thirdly, you had Tarsus, no mean city, as some have waxed eloquent. Sirs, I'm a citizen of no mean city, as the Apostle Paul said, because he was Saul of Tarsus. Now, not only was he from Tarsus, but he was Saul of Tarsus. And that was all he had to say. I'm Saul of Tarsus. And that was like a whole string of letters behind his name. M-A, Ph.D., D.D., all those things. He was a brilliant man, head and shoulders smarter than the children of Israel, among the children of Israel. And, of course, we have a good comparison there. The other thing about the Apostle Paul that compares to Saul is that Saul was the son of a wealthy man. And so was Saul of Tarsus, the son of a wealthy man, in an engaging conversation that he has with his captor, Paul claims the rights of his citizenship, and his captor saying, hey, listen, it costs me a lot of money to buy my Roman citizenship. What are you talking about? And Paul told him the truth. He said, well, I was free born. I was born free. He was not only born a citizen of Rome, but he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So we have a good comparison here between, but it's a contract. It's a comparison insofar as we find Two men naturally endowed, naturally gifted to lead the people of their generation. Saul, the son of Kish, naturally endowed with height. Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Apostle Paul, as Saul before he was regenerated, before he was converted on the road to Damascus, 
before he realized that his pedigree was only worth dung, and he threw it all on the trash heap, where, by the way, I have placed my own college degree. Not that I would compare. Not that I'm Saul of Tarsus. I'm not of that kind of caliber person. But he certainly was, and yet he found all of his merit worth nothing and threw it on the trash heap. Well, here we have now a natural leader, a tall guy that loses the donkeys. Let's compare him for a moment with David. David, a great leader in Israel, he's the one to come. He's the one, actually, that is after God's own heart. We could say this, Saul is the king after the people's own will, and and boy, do they deserve him. David is a man after God's own heart, and he is the kind of leader that God will raise up, and in, in that, he's a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ in certain ways because he's a man of faith. And Saul is not. He's a man of sight. And he leads by sight. The people see him and say, he's a tall guy. Who's going to mess with a guy that tall and that big? Well, I'll tell you who'll mess with a tall, big guy is a taller, bigger guy. And we'll see that in the life of Saul. If if I'll move along, if I'll make my point and go on, which trust I have done. But another thing about comparing him is that David was with the sheep, not with the donkeys. And let's just say from a spiritual point of view, when you think about these donkeys and you think about sheep, well, at least sheep are clean animals, according to the Levitical, according to the law. Donkeys, they have their place. Donkeys are quite good workers. They're quite strong, but they're stubborn and they don't listen. And that tells us a little bit about Saul. He hangs out with the donkeys. And they don't listen, and they're stubborn. And that's all. David hangs out with the sheep. The Lord Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And another thing he says is they won't hear the voice of another. And that's characteristic of sheep. Sheep listen. Donkeys are stubborn. They don't listen. Sheep follow. Oh, yeah, they stray also, but they follow. Donkeys don't. You don't yoke up a donkey with an ox because that ox will go the way of plowing the field, but that donkey, he'll stop and he'll keep the ox, that ass will keep the ox from plowing. And that is the definition of an unequal yoke, an ox and a donkey stuck under the same yoke. So that's just the nature of the donkey. And then finally, David was a keeper of sheep, not a loser of sheep. He wasn't distracted from his task. He had the spiritual mind to be alert, and he laid his life down for the sheep. This guy, Saul, he's a loser of donkeys. And next time you think about who should lead you, who you're going to follow, let's not think about who you want to lead you, but let's just think about who you're going to follow. Let me suggest to you, I don't care how tall the guy is, I don't care how smart the guy is, why don't you follow a keeper of sheep instead of a loser of donkeys. So here he is out looking for donkeys, and I'll make this story short. He comes into contact. He needs to find his donkeys. He decides to go ask a seer or the prophet. He'll go ask the prophet, where are my donkeys? And this is how he meets Samuel. He actually comes to Samuel, and he doesn't even know the prophet when he sees the prophet. 
And we just have a little something here about Saul. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, I pray thee, where the seer's house is. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. And that tells us a little bit about Saul. He doesn't know the man of God. He doesn't know who a man of God is. And, of course, that's a problem when the leaders don't know who a man of God is. They don't associate with men of God. They don't know men of God. They still have religious men around them, but not men of God. So Samuel puts his mind at ease. He says, as for your asses that were lost three days ago, don't worry about them. Don't put your mind on those. Set not your heart on them, for they are found. And who is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and on thy father's house? And Saul answered him, and he said, I'm a Benjamite. Look, I'm from the smallest tribe in Israel. And, of course, that tribe became the smallest tribe uh, the old-fashioned way. They earned it by their disgraceful, disgusting behavior, which we didn't read about when we skipped it in Judges 19 and 20. But Samuel says, well, no, you're going to be the king. You're the king of Israel. And uh, all the servants that were with Saul were leaving with him, and Samuel, or the servant that went with him, and Samuel says to Saul in 1 Samuel 9, 27, Bid the servant pass on before us, and the servant passed on. But thou stand still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. Now that's good advice, and Saul needs to hear it. Stand still, I'll show you the word of God. Now that reminded of the children of Israel who were told to stand still at the river of of Egypt, the Red Sea. Stand still and see the salvation of God. Now here Saul, he's a man of motion, he's a man of of business. He's a man of action. He's a man of action. He's not a contemplative fellow at all. He was probably busy doing something when the asses ran off. But he said, Stand still, that I may show thee the word of God. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? So, Let me give you a little advice, you're men of action. Stand still and pay attention to the Word of God. The Word of God needs to be heard while you're not so busy. And I know many are driving home tonight, listening to this broadcast while you're driving in your car, you're in the traffic, you're in a hurry because the traffic's awful, you have somewhere to go, and you get in a hurry and you're busy. Stand still a bit, at least mentally. Give yourself a minute and think about the Word of God. And so here it happened that Samuel is made king of Israel, and it was so, it says, that when he turned his back to go away from Samuel, God gave him another heart. God changed his heart. And let me tell you something about Saul, because he's, King Saul is going to end up in a bad place, and when we see what kind of behavior he exhibits and we see the kind of things that happen to him, we may start to forget that this man was given a new heart. Here is a picture of a converted man. He's not only a picture of a converted man, he is a converted man. And God gives this man a whole different mind. And not only that, but it says, And when they came thither to the hill, this is now First Samuel chapter 10, verse 10, Behold, a company of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, And he prophesied among them, and it came to pass when all knew 
that knew him before saw that, behold, he prophesies among the prophets. The people said one to another, What is this that has come unto the son of Kish? Is Saul among the prophets? And that is as if they couldn't believe it, and it became a proverb. One of the same place answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And so here's a fellow who's given a new heart, who's among the prophets, therefore he's prophesying, and at least uh, temporarily he becomes a prophet himself, and he is anointed the king over Israel, and Samuel calls all the tribes of Israel and has a day when they're all before him, when he says to them, you said set a king over us, so now he he uh, is going to present the new king to the children of Israel. And it tells us in 1 Samuel 10:20, when Samuel caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken, that is, taken by Lot. The Lot settles all disputes. He was taken by Lot, the tribe of Benjamin. And when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken, and Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot, And when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, that the man should yet come thither. And the Lord said, Behold, he's hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence. So now we see Saul is a guy who's shy. He's a fellow that goes and hides among the stuff. And that's not necessarily spiritual. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not necessarily spiritual behavior either. He's small in his own sight. That's spiritual behavior. But here's a man who is so shy, he runs and hides when the spotlight comes on him. He's a timid fellow on the inside. He's a large fellow on the outside. Let me say this. The leaders that God raises up take upon the work of God willingly, and they don't run and hide from the people of God. But all the people shout when they see him. Samuel says to them, See, there's nobody like him among all the people. Well, in what way? Well, he's so tall. And the people shouted and said, God save the king. And there you have it. There's the English version of a phrase made popular in England. And by the way, when we see the kind of king men choose among themselves, maybe we understand a little bit about why men of insight who founded our nation, and you can say whatever you want about what their faith was or not, It doesn't matter. They had plenty of insight. They saw what a king would do, that he would take from people, and they also saw the kind of king men choose, a man not fit to lead, and they said, no kings here. And I thank God for that, that I've grown up in a land that didn't have a king. So now we have the king of Israel, and right away, of course, the children of Israel, still being disobedient to the Lord, are in bondage. But God is now raising up Samuel, really, to be their savior through Saul. And they have an enemy named Nahash the Ammonite, and he's named after that old serpent, and he's got a plan to destroy the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and they're really pretty worried about this, and now they've got themselves a real big problem on their hands, and when we come back after this break, we're going to see how God delivers them and what that means. Well, we're studying about the kingship in Israel as it develops, and it's really God gives the people the kind of man they want. They give them, we might say this, he gives them first 
the man after their own heart. And this is the way it is with God. First is the carnal, and then is the spiritual. And so we have, in the order of kings, we first have Saul, the man after the people's own heart, the man after the natural man, the man after the natural man's heart, and then we will have the man after the spiritual man's heart, or the man who's after God's own heart. And that's a little bit of a picture that we could talk about for just a moment to your benefit. First, you're born naturally, and you're born as a sinner. Say, well, I don't know if I was born a sinner. Well, let me tell you how you can prove by the example of your own self that you're born a sinner. And let me just put it this way. Who taught you how to sin? And when did you start? You'll find that you grew up with parents that told you to obey them and not to lie and some other things, and yet you disobeyed them and you lied without being taught to. You're a natural-born sinner, and you're good at it. And that's just your nature. You find a cat that barks instead of meows, you won't find it. You find a dog that meows instead of barks, you won't find it. You find a man that doesn't sin, you won't find it. You are a natural-born sinner, and you're good at it. And then you would be consigned to that. You would be consigned to that fate forever, except that God loves you. And God gave his only begotten son for you that you might believe in him. And God will then give you a new nature when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the midst of your miserable, sinful, rotten self, God will rescue you and save you and give you a new nature that actually cannot sin and that doesn't sin. And then you can join those of us who believed in Christ in the spiritual battle of men and women with two natures waiting to be clothed upon on high with a new resurrection body and waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to return when we will have a life sin apart. And so that's the good news for you today. Well, the children of Israel, the children especially the men of Jabesh, have a problem that Nahash, named after that old serpent, the Nahash, the Ammonite, tells them, threatens them, and they said to him, look, let's make peace. And he says, tell you what, I'll make peace with you guys if you come out and I pluck out your right eyes, each one of you. Well, that's the problem with trying to make peace with the world. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ says, My peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives peace, give I it to you. The world gives peace, it always costs you something. God gives peace, it costs you nothing. In fact, he gives you eternal life and peace with himself. But these guys, now they want to make a covenant. They want to make a covenant of peace. And I'm reminded of Israel and how pathetic it is that they want to make peace with their enemies and they want to find out what their enemies' terms are to make peace with them. And their enemies' terms are always too much, when and they're never for them, and they're never for peace. And yet we see here the nation of Israel in unbelief giving away, offering to give away not their land, it isn't their land, it's God's land, to try to get peace because they've rejected the Prince of Peace. And let me just say that the children of Israel a pathetic example because here we see their first king 
is the king Saul because they say, well, give us a king after the nations. And so God gave it to them. And then later and worse, when the king that God has for them, the Lord Jesus Christ is there, they say, we have no king but Caesar. And that's exactly who God has given them, Caesar. They have uh, Caesar and all what that means as their king. And they will until the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here this guy comes and says, I'll tell you what, you can have peace, but you send out all your men, and we'll pluck their right eyes out. That's the deal. Well, they don't like that. They're scared to death. They lift up their voice and they weep. The men of uh, the elders of Jebish now say to their enemies, say, give us a little time. We'll see if some man comes out to save us. Or here's the way it really says, we'll see if there's a Savior for us. But God does have a Savior. And whereas they think their Savior is Saul, of course, God is their Savior. That's his name. But the real Savior here in this case is Samuel. So they come, and the Spirit of God comes upon Saul when he hears those things, and his anger is greatly kindled. And God had a fight with these Ammonites. And Saul gets a victory over the Ammonites. And the people are all now very geeked up and excited And they are rejoicing greatly. They have themselves a king who they believe gave them the victory, and they don't give it to God. They give it to Saul. They credit the victory to Saul. But Saul, still small in his own sight, says, There shall not a man be put to death today, this day, for today the Lord has wrought salvation in Israel. Now, the children of Israel, they just got that old number one-ism going. And Saul still has a spiritual mind at this point. The Spirit of God had come upon him. He delivered the children of Israel from their enemy, and he defeated this Nahash. And the children of Israel now getting all excited about this new leader that they have. But this new leader that they have, in the next time he gets into a battle, or the next time he faces a problem, this new leader that they have takes it upon himself to do the work of the priest. The Philistines next come up against Israel, and the Philistines gather 30,000 people. We can read it in First Samuel chapter 13. And they come against the children of Israel, and they begin to wait for Samuel to come up. After all, he's the priest of God. And Saul gets impatient, and this is what we see about this fellow. He gets impatient, and their enemies are come up against him. And it says, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. So here's Saul now. He's got all these people gathered to him, and the Philistines come up about 30,000, and they're scared. And they all start hiding in all these wonderful places where we hide. Caves, thickets, rocks, high places, and pits. When your enemies come against you, that's what you see as people. This is what we are as people. We get afraid. We fear. Now, what does the leader of the children of Israel do when they're fearful like this? Does he encourage him? No. It says he waits seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed But Samuel was late. It says Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So here now Saul is left a bit alone. 
And this is when you find out what a leader really is, is when he has no following. We really see the proof of a leader when he has no following, when he's alone. And Saul says, bring hither a burnt offering to me and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Well, now we find out something else about Saul. He's impetuous. He's presumptuous. And he offers the burnt offering instead of waiting for the priest of God to come down. And then Samuel finally does come down. We see that in 1 Samuel 13 and in verse 11. And Samuel says, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash, Therefore I said, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. Well, that's his excuse. And that's another thing that, that lousy leaders have. They always have excuses for us for their misconduct. Oh, you could go on, huh? We could go on and on about this and about the kind of leader that Saul is. But... Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly, thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. And Samuel rose and got him up from Gilgal. And now Saul is a disqualified leader. But let me tell you something about disqualified leaders. Let me tell you another thing what disqualified leaders do. They continue to occupy their office of leadership. And that's another way you can know a disqualified leader is that when he's disqualified, he insists on leading. I could go on and on, and I guess I will tomorrow.